0: Welcome to the podcast about stories from the center of the universe. I'm Daniel Lance. I'm Paul Gilman. And this is Podzo One. Pete Sylvester is a social scientist, entrepreneur, and proud Territorian who has traveled the world by virtue of a career in international aid and development. He spent many years in Southeast Asia and came on to give us his take on the events in Myanmar. Myanmar, formerly Burma, was under military rule for about 50 years before it began its experiment with democracy in the early 2010s. As it reopened to the outside world, the international community looked on with enthusiasm, and financial aid and investment began flowing into the country. Pete jumped right into the mix, moving to Yangon to establish a company that served as both a startup incubator and a consultancy to help build an inclusive private sector in Myanmar. He and his family now live in Thailand. In our conversation, Pete tells us about the territory and upbringing, his travels, the wanderlust that is shared by many in the international aid scene, and his perspective on Myanmar, the Rohingya, Aung San Suu Kyi, and of course, the military coup that happened one week ago on February 1st. So here is Pete Sylvester.
1: Okay, Pete Sylvester, welcome to Podso One. Happy to have you. Great to be here, guys.
2: Nice
3: to meet
1: you. Nice to meet you. I
3: guess we should start with saying our connection to you, Pete, is through John Watts. So I guess we should start with how you know John.
2: John Watts and I, fresh out of uh, of college, as you'd say, undergraduate, as I'd say, um, we got recruited to the Department of Defense in Australia. And uh, our first, what we call rotation, like the first uh, position we put in 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 the Department of Defense, we're sitting next to each other, and uh, we had a blast getting uh, in terms of trying to figure out this massive, ridiculous organization, uh, together. Uh, he was like, he and I were each other's comic relief for a whole lot of seriousness that was going on. And, um, so we made good friends, uh, and we're also, we're also new to, uh, to Canberra, which is the capital of Australia, as you know, and, uh, it's a weird little town. And so we used to joke about how awful it is. Uh, and then, you know, we stayed in touch, uh, after I left Canberra, he stayed there for a few more years and then he made his way across to DC, uh, as you know, and joined the national guard there and did some interesting work, uh, in the Pentagon and for some think tanks. And, uh, eventually I did my master's degree and got recruited to a consultancy, uh, with the world bank in DC. And so that was like right after my grad school when I was like completely broke. And, uh, you know, moving to America when you're completely broke, uh, particularly a relatively expensive city like D.C. is, is a challenge. And, and John Watts helped me out a lot. So I owe a lot of favors to John Watts. And he asked me to, to chat to you guys. And so I'm happy to oblige. That,
3: John is a very, very good man. And uh, he's quite thoughtful. And he is a, a more than decent human being uh, in every encounter I've ever had with him. So, we, mm-hmm. uh, Pete, you and I are lucky to know him. And, and Daniel's of course, has met him as well. So, uh, Pete, let, let's talk about growing up in Australia. I have no idea what that's like other than the handful of things that John has told me. But John's uh, story is unique, just like your story is. So tell us about your childhood.
2: Uh, well, yeah, John Watts grew up in uh, South Australia. Uh, I grew up in North Australia. Uh, uh, well, his his state is called South Australia. My, mine's called the Northern Territory. Uh, so I grew up in Darwin. Which actually has a huge U.S. military presence, uh, and that's one of the one of the few things that it does actually have. Um, it's a small town, very remote, probably the most remote small town in the world. I mean, not, yeah, one of them. Perth is also very very remote, but uh, so essentially the nearest town from Darwin is Dili in East Timor. It's closer to Singapore than it is to Sydney, I think. Oh, wow. And, um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a fun little weird environment to grow up in. Um, very safe, small town. Uh, had a great time. Lots of interesting characters, like a lot of people that go there for government jobs. And a lot of people go there for, like, a bit of a sea change from the, the southeast of Australia. So you get a lot of hippies mixing with a lot of, like, very square people, uh, which creates some fun things. It's a very... Uh, being a remote town and and being in the center of like uh, a lot of Aboriginal uh, history and tribes, it's got a lot of, uh, a lot of connections with Aboriginal Australia. Uh, It's got very close proximity to a lot of really amazing parts of Australia in terms of the natural environment, like Kakadu National Park, Litchfield National Park. Uh, So yeah, we used to just cruise around on our bicycles um, pretty much run wild, try to avoid crocodiles. Uh, and and yeah, it was a fun place to grow up. I was there until I was only about 11 or 12 years old, but I still consider myself a Territorian, uh, just because I don't want to say that I'm a Melbourneian because that's boring. Uh,
3: I, I've heard you you talk about crocodiles. I understand that there are like a, a ridiculous number of poisonous animals in Australia. Is that true?
2: Oh yeah, everything's poisonous. Even <laughs> I'm poisonous, else is poisonous. <laughs>
3: How how do you uh? Uh, share your poison. Is it purely I verbal? <laughs> I
2: guess you have to ask my wife. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs>
3: so, uh, tell tell us a little bit about uh, Aborigines in Australia. It's it's uh, Americans can't have any appreciation for that. It sounds like you grew up uh, in a world where it was commonplace. Being around Aborigines was commonplace.
2: Uh, yeah, look honestly, I don't think that. I'm the least bit knowledgeable about Aboriginal Australia. It's a very complex situation and uh, especially I found that trying to talk about, uh, you know, growing up in a pretty Aboriginal town. um, I mean, Darwin even compared to other towns, smaller towns is is not that that, um, I guess, connected with Aboriginal Australia either, but um, compared to other big cities. Uh, But talking to Americans where your own racial history and uh, political uh, dynamics is so much more complex. I mean, I wouldn't say more complex, but it's, it's different. And it's a really big thing on the top of everyone's minds. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to, to really talk about that subject, to be honest. Yeah, it's uh, all because, clear. I... Well, we're not getting it right. And nobody, like most countries, like post-colonial countries particularly, we're not, none of us are getting it really, really right. But you know, trying to share each other's perspectives, is I just found that, particularly with Americans who you know, have such a, such a complex relationship with a racer, it, it just gets me into trouble, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, um, fair enough. As much as, I, as much as I'm fascinated by it, um, I just don't feel like I'm confident enough to talk about it without putting my foot in it.
3: Yeah, tr- trust me, we, we have uh, similar challenges over here when we even uh, begin to imagine uh, a, a productive conversation about those sorts of things. Yeah.
2: But it, it's, you know, growing up in Darwin as a child, um, you know, the scenes, the, the interactions you have with Aboriginals in, in Darwin, which is an urban environment, um, is, you know, is, is disproportionately negative because a lot of uh, the Aboriginal communities, at least back then in 1980s and 1990s uh, that you come across, they're coming into town to party and uh, sorry, to let loose. Uh, sorry, that's my dog. All good. Uh, and so, you know, you walk to school and you're passing people that, you know, hanging out in the grass, and getting drunk or something. And, and that's not what Aboriginal Australia is about. And I don't really want to share those sort of stories and suggest that's representative. Uh, but yeah, scenes of poverty, um, you know, definite uh, health problems, which are persistent to this day, uh, mental health problems, particularly, uh, you know, we're stuffed up in Australia in terms of the way that we've structured our relationship with Aboriginal Australia. And I'm not sure what the answer is either, but uh, it's in a completely different and complex way. If anything, if you have to draw an analogy to American life, there's similarities I've seen based on my time in America with what's happening with Native Americans and yeah. the way that you, you as the, uh, you know, the dominant power of the white America is trying to manage uh, the, the Native and Aboriginal populations is, uh, it's a similar sort of challenge you guys are having, but I'm, I'm sure completely different in other ways.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I, I did. not intend to intend to go there, but I didn't realize you grew up where you grew up uh, nice. as a Territorian, which, by the way, is a new term for me. I, I've learned uh, at it's least one thing tonight. Sounds cool, doesn't it? It does. It absolutely does. I, it I, sounds I like missed. you go
2: around lifting your legs against poles and stuff, but um, <laughs> now, Territorians are good people. We're, we tend to be pretty rough and ready, and I kind of feel like if I had to have uh, another region in America that we would like relate with I feel like Texans maybe because it's like a big big state uh not that many people oh Texas a lot of people uh, but at the same time it's very remote so maybe like Alaskans yeah uh, so I don't know that sort of people but you know the entire political spectrum of Australia would fit within the Democratic Party most of the time <laughs> so we, I wouldn't call it a red state I know that I follow American politics quite a lot so I know that's like a, a, a variable that you guys are thinking about a lot Anyway,
3: yeah, you, uh, Pete, you may know more about American politics, uh, than I do. I've turned off every uh media outlet, yeah. uh, for the last few months. It's uh, it got yeah. quite crazy yeah. here, apparently. Hey, so you, you moved to your family moved to Melbourne, it sounds like, as an 11 or 12 year old. Mm-hmm. Was your experience, uh, in Melbourne drastically different than uh, your territory time?
2: Yeah, for sure. Melbourne's like, uh, I mean, by Australian standards, an old city, uh, an older city. There are I mean, Australia is a very egalitarian country, but Darwin is like the most egalitarian or probably, I mean, I haven't been everywhere in Australia, but a very egalitarian culture, like fiercely egalitarian. And, um, I went to like a private school in Melbourne and that's like a completely different experience where lots of rich kids and, um, you know, it's culturally very different, uh, at least to the experience when I was growing up very early, early years. So, uh, a lot more competitive, like Darwin was, you know, a very, very relaxed, short-out sort of Australia um, compared to Melbourne. Uh, you know, Australians in general are thought of as a pretty happy-go-lucky, easy-going people, but, uh, you know, in the urban environments, the big ones like Melbourne, Sydney, maybe Brisbane, Perth, uh, it's not that way really. So yeah, it was a it was a change of speed, but, you know, I think it was ready. Like the school quality in Darwin is far less than the sort of schools that you could go to in, in Melbourne. And so my parents decided to send me down there for my high school uh, times. Uh, and I got to say, it's pronounced Melbourne. Melbourne. How did Mel- I say it? M-E-L-B-N. No, <laughs> Mel- Melbourne. Melbourne.
3: Melbourne. I'm getting closer. I'm still screwing it up, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, it's,
2: I, I don't need to correct the American when they're trying to pronounce Australian city names, but if we're talking about it.
3: Well, no, we should, you should correct me and Daniel should give it a try.
1: Yeah. Melbourne. It's weird, though, because it's uh, we, we definitely have the hard R in, in America and mm. uh, there's more of a. I don't know, it's it, like when I was reading Harry Potter uh, as a kid, a lot of the time uh, you'd see the word ER to be like, mm. uh. it's like the equivalent to the American U-H. And so um, I was like, why are they saying er all the time? I, I don't understand. But it's just uh, the difference in pronunciation. Yeah, we've got a casual disrespect for the letter R in Australia. <laughs> um, there, there are parts of America that, that also... word Harry Potter.
2: We'll pronounce the the R's in Harry because you got two there, so it sounds like it's pretty important, but not at the yeah, end it's... of it. Not at the end of yeah. the word ever.
1: Right. It's, it's hard to get through the word Harry without saying the R. Can't yeah. imagine. <laughs> yeah, so um, you were high school in Mel- Melbourne uh now you're getting worse
3: uh <laughs> oh, that's great
1: I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do the melbourne in the end but it's not working out and then uh then did you go on to uh to university
2: yeah i did uh undergraduate uh or college in in melbourne and um and yeah i went abroad for my master's studies but yeah and then how did university. you
1: how did you get well, well let's start with what, what did you study
2: Uh, I studied commerce and arts. It's kind of, um, it's popular in Australia for some reason to do double undergraduate degrees, which takes five years. I'm not sure why such a bad idea. (laughs) It takes so long. Um, so yeah, I did two undergraduate degrees, uh, as most of my friends did. And then, uh, I did an honors degree as well at the end of that. And to do an honors degree, I think it's kind of like the, uh, the British system where you do an extra year on top of your five years. To get to do a master, sorry, an honors thesis, and uh, then you get like honors in brackets at the end of your uh, your degree names. So I've got uh, a.
1: That'd be a six-year uh, thing for like basically equivalent of a of a bachelor's with honors.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, no, it's 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 too much study, really. <laughs> but uh, it's like two bachelor's degrees, one with an honors degree attached to it. I could have okay. attached an honors degree to the other one, but that would have been like seven years. I might as well be a doctor at that point. I mean,
0: <laughs> it's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, and it, well, then it I
2: did like... two years of master's studies, and so yeah,
1: I. And I was your master's hard. was your master's in the same line as the arts and commerce?
2: Uh, no, I did a master of public policy, um, but technically I did a double master's degree as well. But that, <laughs> I mean, so, so it's, wait a minute, Pete. How old were
3: you when you finally left school?
2: Uh, well, I took a bit of breaks, but, um, I guess I finished my master's degrees, uh, at the age of like 25 or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't tend to tell people that I got a double master's degree. I mean, it's like having three nipples. (laughs) They're all individually very nice, but it looks a bit weird.
3: (laughs) That's a good, I might use that one. That's good. (laughs) Uh, uh, so you said you, uh, were overseas for your master's. Where were you?
2: Uh, I did my first master's. It's kind of like a double degree, uh, combo thing that, you know, each master's would be a two year thing, but it was kind of like combined. So it's not two separate masters. Uh, the first master's was in, uh, Singapore at the Lee Kuan Yew school of public policy. And the second master's was in, uh, Sciences Po in Paris, uh, in France. So, uh, yeah
3: so was it being were all those courses being taught in english or the
2: native language yeah english yeah i don't, I don't think i could study any other any other language
1: and did you have like a it, it, you're very well traveled uh so did you have this like travel bug from from the get-go from early on
2: yeah pretty much like um i mean that's part of the reason why i did a master's degree just because I was bored and I wanted to get out of Australia for a while. And someone gave me a scholarship to go study abroad. And I thought, wow, that sounds fun. Um, but yeah, like halfway through my undergraduate degrees is six years slog, Uh, I was just kind of finding myself really bored and depressed and I didn't see any end insight. So I just sort of hit pause for my whole studies for a year and me and my best buddy, we just started traveling. We went around the world, um, on a backpacker trip, which is what a lot of Australians do. And, uh, and yeah, I kind of got the travel bug then and haven't really stopped traveling ever since. This is when I was like 21, 20 years old. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I was kind of like trying to find a life that could allow me to travel. And uh, I, I guess I did.
1: That's awesome. Um, so tell us about like what, what kind of job it is that allows you to travel. Like What, what has your career been?
2: Well, yeah, my, my career has been super messy. I'm not sh- even sure what I call myself. My parents <laughs> don't just tell people when they ask, oh, what's Pete doing? Um, but uh, I, I guess the general theme is like international development, which is, you know, USAID, they're a big player in international development. And people in that sector or industry, they tend to travel around about a bit, they get posted. Uh, they move themselves and they're kind of comfortable just like, Upping stumps and, or upping stumps is a cricket reference. I shouldn't use that for an American audience, but um, uprooting themselves, i say, and, uh, nice. and bagging themselves across the planet. And, and uh, we're, we're just vagabonds. A lot of people uh, eventually sort of settle down in a place like Washington, D.C., where there's still a lot of jobs for people like us. Uh, but some of us just keep on traveling until we die. <laughs> huh. So, yeah, my wife also is from that sector. We met when we were in uh, grad school. Uh, and she had an interest in traveling. She grew up in Singapore. She's American, but um, grew up in Singapore, studied back in Atlanta, and then wanted to keep on moving ever since. And and so we're bouncing around, really.
1: That's very cool. Uh, so I actually, due to my dad's job, I moved around as a kid every three or four years. And
3: okay.
1: um, a lot of that was international, too. So I was in Bolivia and England and Kuwait and Egypt. And uh, this whole uprooting or upping the stump, as you, as you call it, Um, yeah, it was something that, uh, I got very used to and I saw a lot of my friends get used to, and some of them I've seen go on to like continue that kind of that pattern. Um, it's like this psychology that some third culture kids have where they just want to keep moving. There's like an internal clock. Like I've spent three or four years in this one spot. I'm going to go somewhere else. Uh, but it's funny because you grew up basically in one spot and then, but you've been totally, it's almost like you we're always natively okay with just moving from one place to the next.
2: Yeah. Look, I mean, I go through phases of how okay with it. I am. Um, sometimes I just wish we just sort of stay put, get embedded in a community and and make friends that are going to be around for the rest of our lives. And other times, you know, we see it a bit more adventurously and think, well, it's such a big beautiful world. I've never lived in Africa. I've never lived in central Asia or, uh, it'd be cool to, to go to those places. Um, and you know, we got kids now and that's part of it. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I, I guess the, the sort of person I am, uh, the sort of things that I've enjoyed in the past is always just, you know, as soon as I get bored, I start thinking about, well, what if I move to a different country? That'd be fun. And that's kind of like an easy answer. Uh,
1: so, So tell us about some of the countries that, uh, that you've lived in.
2: So, uh, yeah, I mean, I I lived in a few, I mean, some shorter than others in terms of duration. Uh, I lived in Australia up until, I guess, after I met John Watson, after I finished my program with the Department of Defense, uh, I got offered to do an internship with the UN in in Beijing, in China. Hmm. And so I was there for only about four or five months. Uh, but I also studied Chinese there, uh, for a couple of months as well. So I know Beijing pretty well, uh, made a lot of friends there. Uh, but then got offered the master's program. So I went to Singapore and then I went to France to finish my master's and then I went to DC and from DC, we went to Myanmar and from Myanmar, we came to Thailand sort of for a while. And then we went to Lebanon. Uh, and then we came back to, uh, to, to Thailand and that's where we've sort of stopped for now. Um, so yeah, those are the main countries.
3: Wow. Uh, And what drove all that travel after your master's degrees? What drove it? Yeah.
2: Um, Well, yeah, as as I mentioned before, like the the international development sort of lifestyle and career path. uh, Also, just interests. uh, Yeah, each individual choice of going to a different country seemed to be driven by completely different circumstances. But I sort of created those circumstances by making choices about what sort of career and lifestyle I want to have, right? So it's just like following opportunities, I guess, that's a short answer. Um, you know, to, I, I went to China to follow that opportunity to, with the UNDP, uh, the internship, and then uh, I went to Singapore because of the scholarship with the, uh, the, the school there. Went to France to, because I got off another scholarship to finish my studies there. Uh, and then DC, I got offered a consultancy there uh and then i think the first sort of like self-driven thing rather than just sort of like being open to opportunities uh my wife and i we were at then at that point we were boyfriend and girlfriend and um we wanted to be back in the same place because i was in dc and she was in singapore running a, a ngo or social enterprise technically uh we both want to be back in the same place we were both kind of bored and, and not that happy with the contracts that we had uh professionally and we kind of felt like an adventure. So at that point in time, Myanmar was opening uh opening up after a, a period of, you know, being very closed off to the world. Uh, and all sorts of excitement and money and uh new opportunities was was being created there. So we followed those uh essentially went there to set up our own business without any uh particular contract or or idea about how it was gonna work. Uh, and just sort of stayed there for four or five years. Uh, and that was Myanmar. And since then, uh, I guess we've been following opportunities again. My wife got offered a, offered a position in Lebanon. Uh, and then she got offered a position in, uh, in Bangkok here. Uh, and so, you know, we've been in baby making mode for the last few years. <laughs> and so I thought that rather than my own particular opportunities, I've f- helped my wife to follow her opportunities because it's kind of hard to manage a career through those years. Uh, where you're making babies, and yeah,
1: um, you and guys so we were chasing
2: opportunities for a while.
1: You both, you both seem like go getters for sure. Um, and so, is there anything about Thailand uh, beyond the your wife's opportunity that kind of attracted you?
2: Uh, yeah, like I I knew Thailand pretty well after living in Myanmar for uh, a bunch of years. Uh, is a Myanmar was a pretty frustrating and difficult. Uh, country to live in, in a lot of ways. And, uh, the cheapest, easiest way to get out of the country was to come to Bangkok. Lots of flights, very cheap, discount airlines. And so easy to come here all the time and, uh, it was refreshing because you got all the things that you miss from other countries, such as like good restaurants, good food, for some reason, food is the main thing, but, um, you know, also good beaches, uh, nice, good, affordable ways to just relax. Um, some people re- describe Bangkok as like one massive day spa and uh we used to come here and just like treat ourselves a bit um when we've been spending a few months in Myanmar and uh so yeah the idea of uh, when she got offered a position here in Bangkok uh the main appeal for me was just like great we got babies it's just easy in Myanmar everything was difficult uh or most things at least and in Bangkok you don't even have to leave your room like you just everything is an app you know same as America right you can order food you can order most things and then if you wanna leave your room, like there's heaps of cool places to go, check out, good cafes. And, and if you wanna get out of the town, then there's beaches and stuff. So, you know, it's, a, it's an economy set up for tourism. So uh, there's, there's a certain amount of ease that is created by that. And, and so after um, spending a few difficult years in, in Myanmar and Lebanon, which is also a difficult country, uh, the idea of just like having a baby and uh, maybe another baby in a place with great healthcare system everything is just like a phone app away. Uh, and you know, it's something that we're familiar and comfortable with, uh, that sounded like a dream to me.
1: That's really cool. Mm. So the, um, when you guys dove into Myanmar and started a business, uh, what, what kind of business was it and what did it rely on like a traditional kind of like capitalist? We try to provide a product and get people to pay for it or was it more of a, uh, taking advantage of some of the international aid and attention that was coming into the country and doing something with that.
2: Interesting question. Yeah. Uh, I guess, I guess the, the answer is both and it, it's a bit complex, complex to sort of separate it with my business because to be honest, like after working for the world bank and a couple of other UN organizations and, and, uh, also, you know, volunteering and stuff for a couple of NGOs, I wasn't really that interested in working in the social sector. Uh, I just found that the, the attitude that people have in the social sector is, uh, depressingly slow and impractical compared to work in the private sector. So I had no real intention of getting involved in the aid scene. Uh, but for my wife and I both, we, that's the sort of background and education that we had. Uh, and when we first landed there, um, all the money that was trying to flood into that country because it was being open and liberalized. Uh, You know, America and other democratic countries really wanted that trend to continue. So they were trying to invest in it. Uh, And there were just so few people that were on the ground that could get things done, um, at least in terms of people that spoke good English, had a good education background, um, had experience in places like D.C. and other international organizations uh, people that foreign investors and donors were comfortable in dealing with. We were that sort of person and, and there weren't that many people like us. And so, uh, opportunities to start fighting to us because, you know, honestly, when we first arrived in Myanmar, the expat scene in terms of foreigners, uh, was so small. There was like a Thursday night party and a Saturday night party. Uh, and you would know everyone at the party. And, um, and so, now it's completely different, of course, and maybe it's gonna get small again, given the recent events. But, uh, but yeah, you know, we, we just started getting opportunities thrown at us. But what we came there to do uh, was to build the first startup incubator. And this is something that I was looking into in my work in DC just immediately before, and it's something that in a different way my wife was working on in Singapore before we came to Myanmar. And so, yeah, we had this particular business model in mind. We thought we'd go there for like a month, just like test the scene, see if people were receptive to it. Uh, and if it, if it what if people were receptive to the idea, then we'd invest a few more months into in terms of trying to get it started. Uh, and then, you know, people were receptive to everything at that point. It was such a suppressed uh, and depressed entrepreneurial scene there. The startup ecosystem was basically nothing Uh, and people like particularly people that were entrepreneurial minded they were just so hungry for everything that we were talking about that we just got sucked into that and we're just trying to find a way to make it work and the way initially that it started to work was getting donor money basically but also private sector money we had some donors that was like the eu uh some donors that were uh foreign companies such as was a swiss company and a local uh company that wanted to give us some money so there's little bits of money here and there coming from different types of sector and, and then eventually the big money like USAID, uh the un got organized and and that started coming in as well and we started to do bigger and bigger things nice uh but yeah it was always a mix between you know the public sector money and the private sector money that we're trying to do things with but the company that we started there, uh, which was a business incubator, it started to take on everything, right? It started to get so fragmented and weird in its scope. We were doing like anti-corruption projects for the OECD. We were doing um, you know, government advisory stuff for the German uh, development organization, GRZ. Uh, and then we're doing like hackathons and boot camps and stuff with, uh, with money coming from the, the UN uh and yeah it, and then we we're doing like consulting projects like really traditional consulting projects like assessing the value chains of like sesame seeds and automobiles for uh for volkswagen and and oxfam and and so w- it was just so there's so many things coming in from all different directions and we're just like trying as much as we could to, to manage it and we're you know trying to drink from the hose as you say and uh mm. and yeah we just uh the, the company itself, it's kind of difficult to describe what it was really. Eventually, I guess we had a consulting company, which was like doing traditional research and advisory work, and we had uh, a startup incubator, which was doing like programs to help entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and it just sort of eventually we just ran out of people that can do things. Uh, and then when the foreign multinational companies came in with really, really big money, they were doing like telecoms and banking all our good people just got sucked into that because they could offer better money. And, um, you know, eventually we found it really, really hard to, to have such a fragmented and an intense, uh, project pipeline. And, uh, that's when we started thinking about winding down and getting to a different country. So, yeah, wow. I guess the story overall,
1: that sounds that cool. Fun. It sounds, it, it sounds like you were riding a wave of, of, uh, like there had been so much repression and then it had been, it it opened up and it released like this floodgates. And then you were kind of there to ride the, all of the craziness and all the different um, excitement uh, in regard to that. So just much, to, yeah. yeah, just to contextualize like when this was, uh, Myanmar was under military rule until 2011, right? So would this be right around that time that you went?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, military rule, absolute military rule, um, until 2011, uh, they had like a, a bit of a democratic reawakening that was emerging in 2011. Uh, but I, I mean, you could probably argue that it has never come out of a military rule, uh, to be honest. So there's sort of like degrees in which, you know, whether it's military or not, but yeah, in 2011, like there was is a couple of what we call, you know, black swan events where everyone was completely taken by surprise. Um, it had been very much under the thumb of military dictators for at least 30 years. Uh, and, and yeah, all of a sudden the, the, there was a new president, Tencent, and, um, he took over from another guy, Tencent, gosh, I'm forgetting my names now. Um, and anyway, he, he was a bit more, uh, pragmatic in terms of seeing that the, the, The situation in Myanmar, whatever model that they had working there wasn't really working, you know, people were poor. Uh, The country was being left behind. It was a very extractive kleptocratic uh, system, which in the end, it was not really working. And so he thought he would try something else. And so he started um, signaling that to the outside world by, I think there was this dam project in a copper mine that was sort of uh, put on hold with big Chinese investors were sort of said no to, which was the first time that ever happened. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, American diplomats, uh, other democratic countries were sort of coming in and saying, well, what's going on here. And then it seemed like he could be convinced, like sanctions were starting to come down, uh, foreign money was starting to come in. And, and so this was like a, a big injection of something new and, and, uh, in terms of resources and, uh, they thought they'd try and make that work. And, uh, so this was of course tied to like democratic transitions. Um, and so the democratic transition was happening gradually uh, from 2011 to 2014, which is when the first democratic election was held. Uh, and that's when Aung San Suu Kyi and the uh, National League for Democracy, the NLD, uh, they won in a landslide election. Uh, and uh, and so that period of time from 2011, to 2014, uh, we were there for that. Actually we came in early 2000, Twelve and um, sort of after things started to change, but that wave was was starting to hit that and uh, wave of optimism, wave of enthusiasm, and wave of money and foreign interests, uh, and it sort of peaked around about two thousand and fourteen when the democratic election was was coming, because the election, as good as it was, that there was a democratic transition that was coming into f- fulfilment, it created a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and so from the perspective of foreign investors, that uncertainty translated to risk and then they sort of like just put things on pause. They kind of wanted to wait and see, to see what would happen. Uh, and then the, you know, the democratic party got in, which is great. Uh, but their ability to administer the country, the clarity and consistency in their policies was not so great. Uh, and I feel like that wave has never come back. Uh, ever since the democratic transition happened. Uh, and so there are some countries, sorry, some companies that stayed, um, most companies kind of stayed and maintained an operation. But that flood of foreign interest and investment um, uh, kind of subsided. And then, of course, there are some bad news stories coming out, such as the situation in Rakhine State, which is the state that um, borders Bangladesh and historically has a large uh, ethnic Bengali population, which we call Rohingya. Uh, is more um, more Muslim, uh, and and so there was, you know, eventually it started to, to gradually work towards like a pretty genocidal situation, and, you know, that is bad for investment, of course. I mean, it's bad for many, many other reasons, which are more important, but in terms of this wave, uh, investors looked at that and thought, well, this can't end well, and they're right, and it hasn't ended. It hasn't ended at all, but it's certainly not ending well. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so now that the military has come back in, I kind of feel like the wave is going to completely subsided. And uh, and this, this and way, we'll still wait to see what's going to happen. Maybe it will transition to that government that we had between 2011 and 2014, which was actually very pro business pro foreign investment or maybe we'll go back to the dark ages where we're sort of trying to figure out what the trend is there. And a lot of my, my friends and former colleagues are, are pretty worried, to be honest.
1: It's, it's very interesting hearing this from, it's, it's like a financial lens. Uh, when you speak of the wave or the optimism, it's like uh, the optimism of potential investors. Uh, did you also pick up on optimism or maybe disillusionment? on the ground by the people and the locals that you interacted with when you lived in Myanmar?
2: Yes, it's it's tricky. Like, I mean, even when the wave was coming, uh, there was still disillusionment on the ground with the everyday, I mean, the average Myanmar person Uh, because that wave of resources, uh, sure, I benefited uh, benefited from it, Uh, there are some Myanmar people that benefited from it too. Uh, but the number of the proportion of Myanmar people that were benefiting directly from it in terms of increased incomes, uh, general safety, better medical services, all the stuff that you'd expect from a country getting wealthier, most people weren't benefiting from it. People are still poor. Uh, and the ones that were really standing in front of the wave and getting all that um getting all the benefit from it, uh were the ones that had operations set up and they can like do something with that money. Uh and most people weren't operating at that level. Uh the ones that were generally were the wealthy elites that uh had already captured most of the economy, uh, the extractive economy, the the military driven economy um, and the ones that had managed to develop large organizations throughout that kleptocratic period uh, and had managed to transition themselves sufficiently towards uh, the sort of model that Western uh, money was happy to deal with. Uh, There's a few big names there, uh, but, you know, the, the ones that were military companies, even they benefited from it. But so the person on the street, uh, the average day uh, middle class by Burmese standards person, like they probably just continued. Maybe there were more opportunities. Uh, they got mobile phones and got connected to the outside world in a way which they hadn't before. Uh, so there are some benefits, but really, um, yeah, they they had reasons to be skeptical and they were skeptical. There were reasons to 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 sort of just feel like well. You know this is all well and good that there's more money coming into the country and that's great it's great to be to have a mobile phone now and to have a connection to the internet and the whole world uh but really uh the economic environment the economic model hadn't changed significantly that the benefits were democratized if you know what i mean
1: yeah that's that's crazy and the other thing is like reading about how myanmar it was under british rule until like 1948 and then starting in 1962 all the way up until 2011 if even that uh it was under military rule so it seems like generationally or there's just like this sort of cultural memory of always being under military rule always being under this like repressive Mm -hmm. regime um so yeah tell us a little bit more about the build-up to you know what happened on february 1st like some more context around that. Maybe tell us about Aung San Suu Kyi oh. as well.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, uh, it was a shock to me that that happened. Uh, I I kind of stopped reading Myanmar news on a daily basis. So uh, I think there were a few murmurs, uh, a few rumblings from the military leading up to that, but not enough that you would expect that there'd be a coup. Uh, it seems as though... In terms of the backstory of what happened, um, essentially the election, uh, was run last year in the same way it was in 2014. Uh, again, landslide for Aung San Suu Kyi and her party, the NLD, uh, she won like 80% of the vote or around that sort of mark, uh, which is huge, right? I mean, imagine if Biden won 80% off the vote. Uh, but basically, I mean, there's a lot of parallels of what happened in America. And I'm not sure how sensitive you guys are to talk about American politics. We're, we're not that uh, sensitive. Go okay, forward. good. So they kind of pulled a Trump. They basically said, well, this can't be the the answer. This can't be the result. I didn't win. I don't believe it. I can't <laughs> believe I didn't win. I was so confident that I was going to win that I'm just going to refute the results without any actual evidence. Uh, and as opposed to, like, I think Biden won the the uh what, the popular vote by what, 55% or something, maybe something around there. Yep. Um, you know, 80% is a bit bigger and you kind of need a bit of evidence to sort of show, well, you know, there was absolute fraud in a more systemic way than just 55% would warrant. Uh, but I mean, similar to, 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 uh, to, to Trump. I mean, they just said, well, no, I'm just going to, the accusation is sufficient. I'm going to argue until I'm blue in the face. Um, but, you know, the military don't have to argue. they got the guns. Uh, and, the, and as I mentioned before, like, it never, the military was never gone. They were never put into a similar position to what we're comfortable with militaries in our democracies where they don't have a privileged position. They can't just arrest power whenever they feel like it. Um, yeah, so they, they, ha- they always had that power. They can sort of just lock everyone up and take everything back. Uh, And they just decided to implement it there because I think the Myanmar parliament was about to do their first sitting in parliament uh, like the day after, a couple of days after, um, after February 1st. And so I'm not sure what they had on the agenda in their parliamentary sitting, but maybe it was something that they found a bit threatening. Uh, Or maybe they just got bored and maybe they were upset that they weren't winning enough in the way that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi had set up the economy. I mean, they were winning pretty hard, uh, but, you know, not enough. And so uh, I'm not sure exactly what the trigger was, whether there was a trigger, whether there needed to be a trigger. But eventually they said, well, uh, we're tired of this. We're going to take the the economy back uh, completely. And, uh, you know, they already owned most of the economy. Sorry, my notifications are buzzing. Um, but, uh, But, yeah, you know, they had all the extractive sector pretty much tied up wood mining uh, to some extent oil and gas and a lot of it. i mean they nationalized production of all alcohol and you know beer companies they had, a, they had they got this company called Myanmar economic holdings which is owned by the military government uh and and it's massive they're making so much money and all that money is just being piled into dark places which nobody knows about um and uh and that was enough for them so they're just taking it back and they're going to take everything else And what that means in terms of all my friends who have set up companies there at the same time that I was setting up a company uh, or setting up NGOs, uh, setting up all sorts of new initiatives and great things for that country, what it means for them is really uncertain whether they're just going to clamp down anything that doesn't suit them, which they were to some extent doing anyway. whether they're gonna try to take everything back that is worth taking, every bit of the economy that is making, you know, surplus and profits, Uh, or whether they're just gonna like, you know, be happy with their existing uh, setup in terms of their already massive and diversified economic holdings. Uh, uh, We're not sure, but uh, either way, it's it's bad news. It just creates a huge amount of uncertainty and a lot of people are worried. A lot of people are thinking about getting out a friend of mine who, who went there, um, and set up a, uh, uh, an organization that does technology for development. So they do like hospital systems. They do, um, maternal health apps and period tracking apps. Uh, they're doing really well. They've got, they've built a team of like a hundred, uh, people in the same time that I built a team of like five or six and then got out, they built a team of a hundred people, they've got a huge, awesome technology company, making a huge difference with technology and he just posted on LinkedIn uh, yesterday and I was super shocked that he's basically trying to get all these people out Uh, and he's really smart cookie and I think you know for him to make that sort of call and he's trying to get funds so he can transport all these people out of the country for him to make that sort of call really makes you wonder you know about the fate of that country and and where it's going Um, and so yeah I'm I'm really curious to to see what's going to happen we're all we're all trying to read the signs read the tea leaves to, to figure out which way the military is going to go but um yeah anyway
3: yeah i and. i have personally never experienced a, a coup i, I imagine <laughs> this week they so- did the other day right uh-huh
2: you nearly did uh in dc uh not so long ago here insurrection yeah, right?
3: we, we're like a hundred miles from there yeah
2: that's a crappy coup the, the myanmar people know how to do a proper coup
3: <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 was absolutely a proper coup i i don't know what that was on january 6th i'm not yeah. sure hey by, by the way real quickly uh a 51 to 49 margin a two percent margin that's considered close anything inside of that outside of that two percent margin it's not really considered close 80 to 20 uh, i mean it's it's not mm-hmm. about the vote at that point it's just the military for whatever reason wanted to exert its uh power again
1: and they yeah. uh they now they're justifying it they're not just saying hey we want to take back all this economic control and power but they there's like a bullshit reason that they kind of show well there was a fraudulent in the election but then i also heard that it was something about walkie-talkies being found in ang San Suu chief's house or something uh, what's yeah. the deal with that i probably have a walkie talkie in my house i don't even know i mean <laughs>
2: yeah look like, I mean, uh it... if, if they don't find the evidence they have they'll just put the evidence there uh, th- there's a, a guy I know that was a reporter, uh, for an international news outlet. Uh, and a few years back, he, um, he got asked to come have a meeting with a police officer, right. Yeah, to get some information that he could use in his reporting. Uh, he rocks up, they arrest him and they put some documents in his pocket and they take him to court. Judge says, oh yeah, they found these documents in your pocket, which is sed- seditious. Uh, and they locked him up. This kid's got like, no, he's not a kid, he's a, he's a guy with a, a, a young family and they just locked him up uh, for no particular reason. So, you know, that the court system, there's no court system. Like, you've at U- U- least got a pretty independent Supreme Court, even though it's pretty well stacked now, like at, at many levels. Uh, there's no protections in Myanmar. If, it, if the, the difference between the sort of coup that someone like Trump can try to run in, um, in, in America the sort of coup that you can have in, in Myanmar is that there are no protections in myanmar the institutions that protect democracy are just not there in myanmar uh, the press is not sufficiently independent uh, the court systems are not f- sufficiently independent or rational uh, everyone's bribeable um, and the military is still way too powerful uh, and you know constitutionally enshrined and so yeah it's it's a big difference so,
1: so when the NLD like actually got power in 2014, which is- Sorry, I think it my powerhouse is going. Oh, Oh, no worries. Yep. let me. Okay, I'll, I'll just restart. So, so when the uh, NLD got power, which stands for the, is it National League of Democracy? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, when they got power in 2014, was that really just kind of a victory in name only? Was was the military still really involved? And in, uh, to what extent was like Aung San Suu Kyi and her party able to kind of actually build a, a democracy without being abused by the like what you say all the corruption
2: uh yeah good question pretty limited to be honest i mean though it's kind of a power sharing arrangement rather than a fool taking over a democratic transition uh and the reasons being is a bit technical but um basically the military set up a constitution before they uh, they have an election where they have a guaranteed 25% um, uh, membership of the parliament. And so 25% is an important number because you need 75% to make a change to the constitution. So they, they need that super majority of 75% rate. So essentially, like, you know, they were there, they could not be kicked out. And, um, you know, the NLD government didn't really have the power to do everything it wanted to do. Um, and so passing, passing uh, constitutional reforms, at least, I'm not sure about other sort of like lower level um, laws and regulations, like there's a certain amount that they could do there. But, you know, the big changes were pretty limited in what they could do. Mm. Um, having said that, you know, she didn't do as much as she could, I think. Uh, when I say she, like, she was also restricted in, in terms of power. She wasn't the president, but she was like a de facto leader as well. Uh, and the big bits of the government were still basically military-run. Uh, she took over most ministries, but uh, the defence department, the sorry, the Ministry of Defence, the Ministry of uh, Home Affairs, uh, the Foreign Ministry, uh, all those sort of big ones, uh, she she continued to uh, the, the the military continued to run. Uh, and under the Ministry of Home Affairs, which manages the police, uh, they also manage the, um, the General Administrative Department, which sounds very uh, innocuous, but it's essentially running all the governments down to a village level. Uh, a lot of you know, the day-to-day sort of what we would call like councils or county governments, um, a lot of the operations of that was put under this, uh, this mega department under the Home Affairs Ministry. And so the reach of the military, even down to a township level was still significant. Mm. Um, and so she got at these other ministries, like, you know, ministries of hotels and tourism ministries of, of transport, uh, that sort of stuff, you know, she got hold of, but it's, it's not the mega departments of the, of the government. And so really, I mean, she, she didn't have full control of the government ever. Uh, and, mm. Uh, they always had like a foot in the door that they can open the door and just walk right back in, which is what they've done.
1: It's She has an interesting character arc from, uh, she was on house arrest for a while and became sort of like this human rights, like darling of, of the world. And then I, it seems like her reputation just got a little bit more complicated because of this, you, you brought up the... Um, the pre-genocide or the genocide of the Rohingya uh, Muslim population and her you know part of what I was getting at with that with that first question was like she has come to the defense of the military quite a bit despite them committing acts of genocide or you know rampant violence and she's come under a lot of criticism for that and so I'm wondering like is that because her Did she come to their defense because she felt like she had to and her hands were tied uh, and she was really just a a leader in name only or was it something else?
2: Yeah, it's tricky to answer that question, to be honest. Um, I know people that would have a better understanding of those dynamics, uh, having like worked with her in the government. Uh, And I feel like there's a mix of opinions uh, about how much how much she could have done and how much she did, uh, how much her hands were actually tied still after coming out of the house arrest. Uh, My personal opinion is that she didn't do enough. Uh, And, you know, when, when she got back into power, I was one of the tens of thousands of people in the street partying uh, and, and so, so happy that that had happened for everyone. Uh, And I got to say she was even before what happened recently on, on February, uh even before that it's been a massive letdown um and so this is a continued letdown of course because you know it's going back to way th- the way things were even before we went there maybe uh but yeah in terms of the dynamics of what she could have done look the nld the national league of democracy it's still a nationalist party uh and when i say nationalists like burmese nationalists and you know myanmar is a country of of different ethnicities and, and different religious persuasions, there's a lot of diversity in the country, but uh, her party, and people might disagree with it, is, is very much kind of like an ethnic Burmese um, party and Burmese is like the central core of the country where it's the majority of the people and then it's sort of on the peripheries of the country geographically and economically to some extent and socially to some extent you've got other minorities and, and, and uh, it's a big rich, rich tapestry, but Uh, the Burmese are generally Buddhist, uh, and it's surprisingly popular, you know, for very nice people. Honestly, me and my people are so, so nice, so kind. I found it surprising how many people I'd speak to that were completely in support of, uh, kicking out the Rohingya people, uh, kicking out Muslim people, making it life difficult for Muslim people. And, you know, you know, I can't speak about everyone there are some people that are completely against it but it was a popular position for her within her own electorates uh, to take and it's also a position which the Myanmar military was in favor of I think uh you know in terms of suppressing that that particular ethnic minority uh and so but even then like you wonder, uh, an, a person like her with an international outlook on life, you know, she studied at Oxford, she speaks the Queen's English, uh, she's got many friends, she was supported very much by the, the, the British government um, and other democratic governments when uh, in all those years she was under house arrest. Uh, she's very well traveled, she, she reads a lot of news from the international media, lots of friends internationally. Yet she still seemed to be fully in support of this very, I mean, I think for, a, I think a strange, uh, a strange attitude to have towards uh, that minority. So anyway, I mean, I think she could have done a lot more. We're all hoping that she would be like this Nelson Mandela figure, which would, you know, during a tough, fragmented, tumultuous time, show some moral leadership be that rudder for her people, because she is absolute that figure. A lot of people look up to her uh, and, you know, steer the national sentiment towards something a bit more healthy, uh, like Mandela did um, doing what she needed to do uh, to heal the country after a long period of suffering, uh, to bring peace with all the, the, the regions that were, were still fighting against the central Uh, central government and particularly the military Uh, and sort of like be that figurehead internationally for a country that's coming out of transition, normalizing, she could have done a lot more um, and she didn't. And so I I personally think that throughout all this time that she was under house arrest, uh, the image of her as uh, a, a very, you know, positive person, morally strong, Uh, Someone that is aligned with, you know, the sort of sentiments that we hold dear uh, internationally in terms of supporting democracy, uh, supporting diversity and different types of people and different types of persuasions, the sort of things that the Nobel Peace Prize Committee would have been looking for. I feel like that was more a construct that was built by the democratic countries that were supporting her during the House arrest period. And the sort of person that she was underneath all that maybe sort of came out when she was released and she got to actually take power Uh, and maybe she changed during that time. You know, a lot of us become a bit more racist when we're getting older, but um, you know, I feel like, I feel like we're all a bit hoodwinked to be honest. Mm. And, uh, and I feel really disappointed about, about her government and, and and the choices she's made disappointed by their inability to govern properly. Like, even if you take away all that sort of, her attitudes to, uh, about about how to govern, she chose people that weren't really good at administering, you know, uh, departments of government. You know, it was very much a, a group of activists that got out of prison uh, and joined her political movement. And as much as I like activists for a, a lot of reasons, I don't really think that they're good administrators necessarily. And, uh, and I feel like if you pack a government full of activists um, as, as leaders then then in it and ineptocracy is what you're going to get <laughs> um, and that's what they got are,
3: are you are you saying that for the first time or is that a common uh, term
2: ineptocracy
3: yeah I don't know it
2: sounds cool right it um, does I'll claim it. Yeah. it
3: all right we'll, we'll <laughs> give you we'll give you credit for it you know, I'm sure if I
2: googled it there'd be someone else um, I might have read it somewhere
3: it's all good. So I'm fascinated by the the military decision. It sounded like they effectively had control, and, and we're talking about chi being a de facto leader, but that feels like a fairly hollow notion. The military, if if I'm one of the power brokers in the Myanmar military, I'm letting this government continue, have international money come out, and I'm I'm going to be even more powerful. I think this coup not, not only sets Myanmar back, it sets the, their military back. I just It seems like a bizarre thing. So I'm wondering what they thought was going to happen in the first day or two or three uh, when the parliament met. Uh, but to an American or to an Australian, I'm guessing whatever their fears were, were uh, either unfounded or silly.
2: I don't know, man. I mean, uh, the, the, the flood of money that we were talking about in, in the wave that I was trying to ride, um, that's foreign money from transparent open democracies market-based systems but there's huge floods of money coming from darker areas right mm. um and so whether that floods the, the, those channels of money are bigger and better than you know the, the foreign money which is usually comes with all sorts of conditions uh and transparency whether that money is better from a pragmatic point of view uh i'm not sure to be honest uh maybe not and yeah. you know we've got china on the border and I, I don't want to you know, hate on the Chinese or anything, but China is not going to be as conditional in terms of the way it spends the money. Uh, China has a lot of very important strategic interests in that country, uh, not just in terms of like resource extraction, but it's got, it's got a pipeline going to the, the sea from China there. Um, uh, and, and so I, I suspect an unsubstantiated, unevidence hypothesis, which a lot of people share right now, is that uh chinese power is 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 part of that um and and china was losing under the under the previous regime Uh, and they might be winning under the next one so yeah i don't know um i wish i I knew more about the current dynamics but as i mentioned i'm I'm not reading enough about it anymore
3: it's fascinating but it sounds like your friends are uh, quite concerned and the example you gave of the guy that runs a hundred person company, he's trying to get them all out. Uh, clearly, uh, I, I'm guessing the day-to-day experience hasn't changed that much, for, but clearly the fear is growing and uh, it sounds like there's going to be fairly significant exodus of uh, expats and, and everything that they stood up there.
2: Yeah, let's see. I don't know. I'm glad I came out a lot earlier. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm worried for some of my friends, to be honest. Uh, already some friends are sort of posting about people that they know have been arrested and put in the prison uh, and even in, under the previous regime, there were people being arrested and put in prison. But I think it's there's going to be a spike, and a little bit of information coming out. Um, but uh, so far, the information is not good.
3: Wow, I I didn't realize they were they were arresting beyond uh, just taking over government buildings.
2: Yeah, uh, honestly, I, I don't know. But um, yeah, a friend of mine said that his father-in-law was just arrested this morning uh there are people that i mean similar to what's happening in russia right now right people are posting videos of themselves getting arrested uh, on social media and they're turning off the internet and social media channels to prevent those sort of images and and narratives from getting out yeah uh so yeah it's it's pretty pretty tricky i feel like i'm I'm a far more depressive guest than your usual guests like uh (laughs) all these bad news stories and uh i don't know there's some good times in Myanmar too. But don't don't get me wrong. Uh,
1: no, it's also, it's that's... fine. I mean, it's uh, we're really glad that you could set aside the time this week because it's uh
3: yeah, you're you're our kinda... you're our first, uh, you're our fastest, I should say, from talking to me, trying to schedule it to actually being uh, on the podcast. I think our previous record maybe was three weeks. We we got together in what uh, three
2: three and a half days or so. Sure. I mean, before we stop talking about Myanmar, in case you're about to say, look. If you want to help people in Myanmar, um, usually if it's a natural, dis- nat- natural disaster, I'd say like give to the Red Cross. Uh, there are plenty of good organizations doing good work. They're going to be under a lot of pressure, um, not, in ter- not only in terms of like donor money, maybe contracting uh, or sanctions coming up, making it harder to do their work, uh, making it less safe to do their work. Uh, if you've got some spare pennies lying around um, I'm happy to share a few links on your podcast website if you want to, to help people in Myanmar. Uh, you know, I've already got a, a couple of friends, as I mentioned, that are trying to raise money through like Venmo in the States. It's super easy to donate. Um, and so, yeah, just think about well, what you'd like to see in Myanmar, the sort of people that you'd like to support there. Uh, and I'm happy to make some suggestions of, of ways you can help out.
3: No, we'd be more than happy to share the websites and uh, certainly let the, the world know in our own small way what's going on there. Um, and, I, and by the way, Pete, you, I, I said it was a fast, fantastic opportunity to talk to you. I, I still believe that. Uh, it sounds like you have uh, connections inside the country, but is it hard to communicate with, with your friends still there?
2: Uh, so far, not too bad. Like The internet's off and on. Um, so the government's been telling the ISPs like the servers, uh, to turn off at certain points in time, but it seems kind of erratic. Uh, so whether you get a message back immediately or you have to wait until the end of the day when the internet's back on it, it, it seems like it's still possible to talk to people, which is cool. Um, but I think certain sites have been shut down. Uh, I'm not sure if Facebook is still up, but WhatsApp I think is still working. Uh, so yeah, I mean, they could turn it off completely and, um, It'd be hard to talk to people if the internet was off. Um, I mean, when I first got there, like very few people had a SIM card. Um, it was like $300 to buy just a basic 2G SIM card when oh, I first wow. got there. But in the time that I was there, it went down to like $5. And so it was completely democratized. And uh, so everyone has connections to the internet. Some people have like multiple phones and stuff now. But um, uh, it could, if they switch off the internet and switch off all the communications channels, then um, it could be going back to the dark ages where it's really hard to talk and you have to somehow just phone people up and uh, try to get through with a really dodgy telecommunications infrastructure. Um, well, it was before. Now, actually, the telecommunications infrastructure is quite good because they had foreign, foreign uh, companies build it. But yeah, I mean, I, I, built, I bought my first SIM card, which was a 2G, 2G SIM card when it got down to $80. Cause I was like dirt broke. I, I didn't have enough money to pay $300 for a SIM card. And even then like the, the internet was horribly slow. We are like working on edge, which <laughs> you know, I'm not even sure if you remember edge, but it was like the technology before 3G and, um, and, uh, yeah. So if they shut down Facebook already for most people in Myanmar, like Facebook is the internet. They don't really know what the internet is without Facebook and, um, that sounds Insane. awful. That sounds awful, by the way, Pete. Yeah, I'm not even on Facebook. But, uh,
1: yeah, that's one yeah. of the um, like one of the things I see on Twitter. One of like the things mudslinging uh, phrases is that Facebook helped, like, it it aided and exacerbated the the Rohingya genocide. Have you heard that? And do you have do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Honestly, I don't know. I kind of feel like, you know. We could probably look at some periods of history where the printing press aided genocide or you know telephones or something to some extent i feel like they could have done a lot more to make sure the hate speech wasn't getting out there but yeah tricky um like a a young lady that used to work for me um in in myanmar Uh, She finished working with me and then actually worked for Facebook and um, was looking at this issue really intensely, trying to figure out how to stop hate uh, hate speech. So I know that there are people looking at it and trying to find out a way that their channel, um, this mega channel, which became the main channel for communicating to some extent in Myanmar. uh, There were people looking at how to make sure that it wasn't being used for hate speech. The telecommunications companies, uh, Telenor, which was one of them, and Urudu was another one. They were looking at this too like trying to figure out you know um how to make sure that the platforms that they were setting up uh when telecommunications were getting back up making sure that it wasn't being used for hate speech but to a certain extent like you know what are you going to do people can talk in code people can find ways around most ways of of being blocked uh and and yeah i so i i don't know if i have a, a strong opinion about yeah. it really i kind of need to look into it more
1: no that's cool um I just, I, I hear those kinds of things get thrown around. And as with everything on Twitter, I assume that there's a lot more nuance to the, to the topic. But even look in the States,
2: like there's all sorts of weird stuff that people are posting on the internet. And you know, in the last few months, I feel like Twitter's gone a little bit more serious, but I don't know really to what extent, if you're going to create a platform for everyone to share information, do you have to moderate every piece of information now? Um, and maybe with AI and stuff, you can figure out who's being hateful and who's not. But that sounds really hard. I don't know. It, it, yeah. it
3: also starts with the definition of hate speech. And uh, right, that yeah. will be debated till the end of time. Uh, so I was going to segue, Pete, to okay. you're, you're an entrepreneur now. And so uh, tell us about it. You said, was it travel tech that you're trying to do? Yeah.
2: When I, when I first left Myanmar, like I had this be in my bonnet to try to set up this company um, that I th- I thought about the product idea back in 2015, well before I left Myanmar. Uh, and when my wife got a job in Lebanon, I had to sign this thing with the Lebanese government to say that I would not get a job. <laughs> and so I kind of had time. And so I started trying to build this company called Window Seater, which um, it's, we- we're starting with the UK, but basically imagine you're taking a train uh, and there's all sorts of interesting things that you can see outside the window. I mean, some things that you might, even think about like changes of the trees and the ecology uh interesting buildings that you might pass by with interesting stories uh changes in demographics and and stuff which you can't even see which you know you're moving through all these interesting transitions that have interesting stories and there are some points of interest with uh some particular places within really interesting stories that can surprise you i try to set up a platform called windows data which connects you to those stories uh which basically in short, it's an audio guide for a train journeys, hmm. uh, but it's more than that. Like we're, we're really trying to do something different in terms of the sort of content, which you would, you, which would, what you'd expect from, from an audio guide about a train journey. I mean, sometimes you take these touristic trains and they've got like some PA announcement that's telling you about some kitschy stuff about certain things, but what we're trying to do is like really help you to get, to understand the places and the landscapes you're traveling through. Um, to figure out, to, to treat it as a, as a huge learning opportunity to, to understand the, the economic, geographical, societal stuff that's happening outside your window. Uh, and also like just to have a bit of fun, like there's some really fun, cool stories about places that you can, you can see too. So I started building that uh, back in 2000, I think, 2015, 2016 uh, with crappy little prototypes. And we're at the point now that we're approaching companies in the UK to try to, to secure a long-term contracts with them. Um, but we're not quite there yet to be honest. It's not a viable company just yet because all these companies are saying, Oh, we're so interested in this and your price point's really, really cool. But right now our ridership is down to like 10% because of the Mm -hmm. pandemic and we have, we're just bleeding cash and we're just trying to keep our people paid. And the idea of giving you a few thousand dollars here and there, um, doesn't really make sense to us right now. So yeah, the company has come a long way. It's been like a passion project for a long time. Uh, but it's not really a company yet. I've got two co-founders in the UK that are doing great work over there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's been tough.
3: That sounds uh, exciting and very gutsy. I, I don't think I'd ever have the guts to try something like that. I, I, I hope the pandemic ends tomorrow and you guys start soaring in a few months. Uh, by the way, you mentioned the pandemic. What's it, what's it like in Thailand? Just Just a couple minutes uh, on the pandemic effect has been there
2: it's embarrassingly good over here. Um, my, my kid just went to school. I just dropped him off before, uh, the school's been shut down here and there. Uh, but to be honest, like there's something like 70 deaths, uh, from the virus here, which, you know, obviously is not very good, but compared to what you guys are experiencing in the States, we've been very, very lucky.
1: Um, so 70 deaths in all of Thailand.
2: Yeah. It's a country of 60 million people. So oh, wow. Like California size. So we've been so lucky, honestly uh and i'm not even sure i can explain it like the the government took it really seriously they closed the borders made international arrivals go through two weeks of quarantine and they've been doing that for a long time Uh, the tourist economy here has been shot uh and that's been heavy hitting for people here that's that's the pain the pain hasn't been so much about the you know the deaths and people getting sick but um but yeah the a lot of people suffering in that respect but honestly they've invested Pretty heavily into getting the the virus under control, at the expense of the economy, and I think that's the right answer, um, which a lot of other countries haven't been doing. Uh, which it just means that a lot of the economy can go about its business and, and continue operating um, to a large extent. Uh, and yeah, we we move about the country, uh, sorry, the city and the country uh, pretty freely. Everybody wears masks. It's a very compliant, you know, culture, I guess. And uh, you know, there's a there's not many people that are gonna say, screw you, I'm a free person, I'm not gonna wear a mask. Um, (laughs) Like like, like they would in Texas, Pete. Right? I mean, anywhere in America, really, I mean, there's certain people that and God bless them, right? They're, they're right to a lot of it, to to some degree. Uh, But not when it comes to pandemics, right, you all just got to chip in and do your part. And everyone does that in Thailand, which is great. There are great people in that respect. And, um, and so I think that's, that's a lot you know, a a lot of the story that right there, just the people, you know, helping each other out. Um, And yeah, they've been doing pretty good contract tracing, but having said all that, like we're getting about 800 cases a day right now, Mm. um, which is the highest it's ever been. Uh, We had for most of the pandemic, zero cases a day, only the ones that are coming in from uh, international uh, arrivals, going into hotel quarantine. Uh, but what they did miss, uh, is, you know, particularly Myanmar people that have come across to work in the fishing sector, uh, they weren't looking hard enough, uh, with those sort of people and, uh, it, the, the virus has taken off in Myanmar and it's sort of coming across the border because the border is quite porous. Uh, and so we might not be out of the woods just yet, to be honest. Uh, and it's probably going to take a while before a, a middle to lower income country like Thailand gets uh, the vaccine. So, uh, yeah, we're not counting out chickens.
3: Yeah. Uh, so what I knew about Thailand before we spoke with you, Pete was, uh, the beaches are beautiful. Bangkok has a, a ton to, uh, to enjoy. Uh, scuba diving is amazing, but literally everything else I learned from one of the hangover movies. Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> that's everything else really. You didn't, uh, <laughs> that's all the, that's all the sorted stuff, yeah. <laughs> Daniel, have you seen Hangover Two?
1: No, I, I've only seen the one where they're in Vegas.
3: Yeah, Hangover Two is a good movie. It, it it rivals the first one. Anyway, I didn't mean to digress to the silly Hangover movies. No, it's funny. Like Thailand is a,
2: is a strange place in that respect because you know you could live a really wholesome, conservative life in Thailand without you know touching on any of the 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 slutty side of it. But then you like walk a street over and then all of a sudden uh, you're in it. It's, you know, prostitutes galore and weird stuff going on. Um, And it's really unique in that respect because a lot of international visitors will come to Thailand, particularly they'll land in Bangkok or Phuket, uh, and they'll go straight to that street because all the tourist advertisements is telling them to go to that street. And they they look around and think, wow, this is not for me. Uh, and then they cruise off somewhere else and, uh, and that's the impression they get in Thailand, but it's not that it's, you, you can avoid that. You know, like I haven't been to those areas for a long time and I've got kids. I'm not going to go there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, when I first arrived in Thailand as a backpacker, uh, yeah, it was crazy. It was, it was very much, I was living the hangover, um, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Uh, so, so yeah, it's a fun country in that respect. If you want that, you can get it. Yeah,
3: I, I, it's definitely on my bucket list to make it to uh, both Phuket and, and Bangkok. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Pete, uh, you did not come across as an introvert. Uh, okay, tonight. cool. Well, uh, there's nothing wrong with being an introvert. Um, I, absolutely uh, not. Yeah. No, I'm I'm, surra- uh, I'm
2: surrounded by introverts in my job, actually. I feel like uh, I'm going to come across as a bit serious, really, because I've got so many fun stories to tell about Myanmar and everything, but uh, it's a bit it's a bit dire right now there and uh it's kind of hard to bring out those fun funny stories about the country when uh when things are really not funny right now
3: (laughs) yeah it's a very very heavy uh situation there and yeah we'll we'll have you back on in in a while pete and you can tell us those fun stories and hopefully things are lighter in myanmar and that part of the world
2: yeah same with you guys uh hope your part of the world uh gets a bit more normal too uh it's looked like it's heading that direction but uh let's see uh, in the meantime, yep. thanks for chatting to me today. Uh, glad that you found whatever I was doing the last dozen years or so uh, was, was fun or interesting. Very um, much so. Yeah, Pete, we, 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 lo- we
3: love unique stories. And in my sphere, that your story is uh, extremely, extremely unique.
2: Cool, man. Yeah. Uh, well, great to meet you guys. Have a great day and weekend. All right. Thanks, Pete. You, you do too. the same. Thanks, Pete. <clears throat>
0: If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.